Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 65 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with my good friend and colleague Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive into a compliance or compliance-related topic each week, literally going into the weeds to explore a subject. Today we take a look at the pitfalls of non-GAAP metrics and how lurking within financial statements and communications of public companies is the troubling trend of utilizing non-GAAP metrics. These alternative metrics, once sparingly used, have unfortunately become more ubiquitous and indeed more attached from reality. Our podcast is based upon, or at least inspired by, the article in this quarter's MIT Sloan Management Review entitled The Pitfalls of Non-GAAP Metrics by David Sherman and David Young. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, editor at Radical Compliance. This is the compliance podcast for you geeks out there. We literally go into the compliance weeds to geek out on some topic. Today, we're going to take a tangential uh, topic, or at least a look at a perhaps tangent, yeah, tangential topic directly to compliance, but it's certainly open to geekiness, and that is the pitfalls of non-GAAP metrics, and there is an article in this month's MIT Sloan Management Review, or this quarter, I should say, by David Sherman and uh, David Young that kind of piqued our interest, so we wanted to geek out on that. Now, Matt, I know you have written extensively and talked about the, the perils of this, so why don't you kind of lay the, the groundwork of what non-GAAP metrics are? Sure. Um, I mean, at the highest and simplest level, and I, I don't even mean this to sound too flippant, but non-GAAP metrics are any financial metric you might put in your earnings release or in your annual report or anywhere else for investors to look at. Any financial metric that is not according to generally accepted accounting principles. Um, GAAP has certain metrics such as revenue or net income or, oh, I don't know, receivables, um, credit losses, all of those things uh, that are in GAAP. And many of them have to be reported in your earnings statement or in your uh, quarterly or annual report. And then you've got everything else that you could report. And if it is not according to GAAP, by definition, it is non-GAAP. That could be something like... um, some, I don't know, uh, let's say net income excluding one-time items, such as restructuring costs. Uh, it could be, um, oh, I don't know, system-wide sales. I think this, uh, this paper cited the example of McDonald's, which reports sales from its corporate-owned outlets as well as its franchisees' stores to give the investor a sense of how many burgers is McDonald's really selling. Um, there are probably different metrics you could use for um, like media companies these days, uh, Netflix and uh, other tech companies like Uber, um, Groupon, which came up with a very cockamamie sort of metric a few years ago and was told by the SEC to knock it off. But a lot of things that are we made, we lost money according to GAP, but if you exclude these f- separate things for whatever reason, actually, we made money. Now, that's not true. Actually, they did lose money, but they're trying to justify their way to saying, if you look at it in a certain light, still we can pretend that we had a good quarter. And that's where we get into all of this GAP trouble. 
So let me add a couple of uh, other types of uh, instances that uh, the article reported where non-GAAP was utilized. One was in the area of stock grants. And here uh, they pointed to LinkedIn, who had a net operating loss of $180 million on its income statements, but it backed out its stock grants and claimed an adjusted EBITDA for the same two years of $137 billion simply by removing the depreciation and amortization charges and removing the cost of stock-based compensation. The other thing, Matt, that struck me was what is, uh, uh, I don't know if it's nominally or euphemistically called non-recurring expenses. Now, I had previously thought non-recurring meant they were truly one-time expenses, but obviously the legal profession has influenced the accounting profession because this definition seems to have been expanded upon by multiple companies to uh, really take uh, into account restructuring expenses, new product development expenses, acquisitions, uh, expenses uh, incurred in acquisitions, and then the always favorite unwelcome news where corporate managers try to uh, obviously try to downplay bad news, but will uh, actually take that out of a gap uh, analysis and claim that, well, it's, it's really uh, a one-time event and it really should be limited uh, because of our unique um, industry position. Um, let me go back to uh, Enron because uh, mm-hmm. being from Houston, that um, was a big part of my business professional experience in watching that. And I had thought that uh, after Enron and WorldCom, we had really gotten rid of non-GAAP. Um, what do you think kind of led to the rise of, of what uh, the authors have in this article and what you've been writing about for at least a couple of years now? Well, you know, we shouldn't say that non-GAAP is bad unto itself. There are instances where a non-GAAP metric can be useful. Um, so this is important for people who aren't quite familiar with non-GAAP. You know, we should stress non-GAAP unto itself isn't illegal. The Securities and Exchange Commission does allow it. Um, On the other hand, auditors do not audit non-GAAP metrics unless somebody pays them to. But it's not part of the annual audit. You know, you audit that which GAAP reports. Um, But let's give the example of a uh, a merger. Now, a merger is a one-time non-recurring expense. And there are a lot of expenses that can happen with a merger generally within one fiscal year that aren't going to happen the following year. So can you justify that maybe we should exclude those merger costs this year because they're never going to happen again and they never happened before? That's fair. Um, It's when you get into tricky business, like you said, with LinkedIn, where it was coming up with an adjusted EBITDA by excluding some of its stock compensation costs. Um, Come on, are you only paying people stock compensation that one year? No. Um, or are you going to tie, tie, exec, tie executive executive which basically you can adjust any way you want? Because again, this stuff is not audited. This stuff can be changed over time so long as you disclose it. Um, we can get into some of the nuances of what the SEC rules do and don't allow for non-GAAP. But you know, conceptually, there are cases where it's okay. Now, you mentioned restructuring costs, and I know I probably did too. That is a great example of where I think things can get a little hinky. Um, 
Hewlett Packard, I'm going to pick on HP for a while. Hewlett Packard has been restructuring, I think, since about 2009. And it always announces a restructuring plan, and it's going to take three years and cut this many thousands of jobs, and it's going to cost us this many billions. And I researched once um, that how much restructuring it had been doing. And these restructuring costs have been going on at Hewlett Packard like year after year for eight years. They announced a three-year plan in 2012, which was supposed to cost, I think, uh, I have it right here in front of me. It was going to be... 2.27 billion and cut 58, 55,000 jobs. Um, by the end of it, the restructuring had cost 3.7 billion, and it had cost, I think, even more jobs than originally uh, planned. But by the end of it, in 2015, they announced a new plan to restructure for another three years. Like, guys, you can't have a non-recurring expense recur year after year after year before we start to think, isn't this just an operating cost? And Hewlett-Packard has been a very troubled company for a long time, and restructuring is part of its business these days because it strategically didn't know what it was doing. So that's when you start to get into things that really don't make sense and that aren't fair. Um, another example I have, and then I'll stop for a few minutes, uh, is that the SEC did last year sanction a marketing company that had been peddling a non-GAAP metric as the result of excluding two different items. I don't have it exactly here in front of me, but uh, I can try and find it. But essentially, they were telling investors, we have this non-GAAP metric that looks at operating income excluding these two items. Well, they didn't tell investors. Actually, there was a third item also included as it was excluding to lead to this non-GAAP metric that said, actually, operating income is great. Of course, according to GAAP, we're losing money. But according to our own metric of what we think is important, we're doing pretty good. It's really, it's about what investors need to know to be able to make good investing decisions. And that's where we get into all of this mess about what is or isn't some fair GAAP and non-GAAP reporting. I'll put it that way. So let me pick up on a couple of things uh, you said, Matt. First of all, uh, you pointed out there are situations where a non-GAAP uh, measure reported in an earnings statement or, or a, a annual report actually can give additional information, particularly if it's properly identified. And you pointed to the uh, McDonald's uh, situation where they reported uh, income from both both restaurants and franchise units and consolidated accounts to really demonstrate the number of, of burgers flipped. The article also pointed to um, Starbucks, which I thought was a, for a really interesting reason that also is of value because by tracking uh, same store sales and, uh, and sales growth to the previous years uh, with the franchisees, they were able to demonstrate an overall growth in the 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 name and the body corpus of of Starbucks. And by identifying that as non-GAAP, it, you know, it properly gave that information. But it also, I think, was of value to uh, the investor and certainly the business community to understand that, particularly when I when I can observe uh, a franchise store next to a company store or rather even on the same block as a company store, and you see how they actually increase the business of both. So I thought that that was interesting. But the um, the other thing that uh, you pointed out, uh, which I thought um, 
was also important was, well, first of all, the three-year plan of HP. Uh, I immediately thought of a five-year plan from another country, but I guess that's probably mm-hmm. for a more political podcast. But if you have uh, really bad news or unwelcome news, and is it appropriate for a company to take a one-time charge and report that or to try to bury that. And that's where I find the, the legalism and the lawyerism creeping in where what we may have seen was a fairly fixed or hard and fast rule from the accounting profession that's being influenced uh, by others who might have a more flexible definition, which is really giving uh, people like yourself and myself or even other more sophisticated investors difficulties in comparing performances. But the article also pointed up a couple of other things that I don't think we have really uh, fleshed out much in our podcast or our conversations. In addition to the difficulties in comparing performances, there were two others specifically identified. One was the risk in setting executive compensation, because if you uh, use something beyond the gap numbers, not that it's simply subject to manipulation, but as you pointed out, it's not audited. And if it's not audited and not measured, uh, then there's no, I think, way for an investor to, to even consider whether an executive compensation package uh, is um, within a, a realistic range of, of a rate. And the second, of course, is the stock price. And they pointed out the difference in uh, Valiant and uh, stock price uh, when they tried to use the non-GAAP measures. And, and, and we have talked about Valiant on another podcast, but I thought it did uh, give a very cogent um, – discussion of the danger in using non-GAAP and the manipulation of stock price far beyond the uh, even realm of, of proportionality going forward. You know, another thing to think about here is um, how not only the fact that non-GAAP metrics generally are not audited, but there is a real risk of what are the company's processes to generate these numbers in the first place and how secure are they that they could be manipulated? Um, so this really is where the Securities and Exchange Commission starts to dislike non-GAAP because number one, every company can come up with its own non-GAAP. So what I might call organic revenue growth and what you might call in your business organic revenue growth, they might come from different things. Um, even if Tom and I are in the same industry, so maybe our non-GAAP metric is kind of sort of alike, uh, we don't know that maybe these numbers are reliable year after year because I've somehow changed my software system or I've changed my policy for how these non-GAAP things are calculated. Um, but even if we're in the same ballpark because we're in the same industry and there are others who have studied non-GAAP who have said Many companies within an industry will use a non-GAAP metric that is roughly similar across companies within the sector. From one sector to another, there are radically different descriptions and uses of non-GAAP. So if I am an investor and I'm not sure whether I should invest in airlines or fast food or media, I can't rely on any of those non-GAAP metrics at all to help me decide what sector do I go into. Maybe if I bank on one sector in particular, I'll be able to get into it, um, and then things might be instructive. But these numbers are inherently untrustworthy because they are not inspected. They are not audited. Um, If I were even just a board director, I would be very anxious about where do we get these non-GAAP metrics that always inevitably 
make us look like flowery successes, even when the company is burning down around our ears. If you exclude the flames, everything's fine. That's what some of these non-GAAP metrics, um, that's how they get abused. And uh, the other point I wanted to give, I, d I do have a little bit more detail of how non-GAAP can be abused. So I mentioned that marketing firm. Um, this happened last year that the SEC fined this company called MDC. Um, MDC was a marketing firm. They got fined $1.5 billion, uh, million dollars, M, million, uh, because they had come up with this organic revenue growth non-GAAP metric. Now, part of what you do is you disclose your organic revenue growth number, you have to reconcile it back to the closest gap approved number, which would be just revenue. And they were telling investors, we reconcile this by excluding these two items. That's the connection between organic revenue growth and gap revenue. But in fact, when you dug further in, they were reconciling this and deriving this by using three items, not two. And they hadn't told investors that. They hadn't told investors there was a third item they were tweaking to get to organic revenue. A lot of it is just from the SEC's perspective. Are you disclosing how you got this number? Are you disclosing why it's valuable? Are you showing your homework to get from gap to whatever non-gap metric you've come up with? Um, and are you presenting both of these things fairly? So it's not a 60-point screaming headline, non-GAAP revenue looks great. And then in the footnotes, GAAP revenue, we lost a fortune. Um, it has to be equal. So it's a lot of you know how to provide investors comparability. And that's, that's the concern here. Well, Matt, this has been a fascinating exploration on a topic we probably don't spend enough time on. I know you spend a lot of time looking at uh, financial statements and uh, reading reports, so maybe you could be the, on the lookout for some that uh, might strike your eye as uh, particularly egregious that we could uh, take into the weeds on another podcast. You know, for better or worse, uh, there are abuses out there. We have seen talk about more aggressive non-GAAP actions from the SEC. I'll be curious to see if we do have more. Um, by the way, the MDC marketing firm that was sanctioned last year was only the second uh, non-GAAP sanction that we have seen in many, many years. The first was against none other than the Trump Organization way back, I want to say in 2000 or 2002, when it violated Regulation G. Uh, that's the rule for some non-GAAP uh, violation there. I don't remember the details of it, but the the most no notable and memorable of these very rare actions did come against none other than our good friend and leader, Donald J. Trump, back when he was leading the Trump Organization as a public business. Well, uh, this has been a fascinating exploration of the pitfalls of non-GAAP metrics. As always, I'm joined by Matt Kelly. And Matt, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly podcast to go into the weeds on a compliance or compliance-related topic. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I hope you'll join us again next week. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.